So in chapter 16, the nation of Israel had brought this great complaint against Moses particularly, but Moses and the Lord make the statement that by complaining against Moses, they're actually complaining against the Lord. They have no food is their complaint, and God sends them quail and manna uh, to supply for them, and then also establishes that they should rest on the Sabbath. So when you move into chapter 17, it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and encamped in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Now, it is uh, sort of implied in Moses' reaction that they're complaining again. And, you know, what the Lord seemingly is doing, and he makes comment about it several times, is he's putting these situations in front of them where they're in need, and he's trying to invoke their prayer to him. He's trying to teach them that when there's a need, you ask of me and I make provision. You know, you consider everything that they've seen as a nation. Forget, you know, the religious belief system and the practices. They've seen the physical working of the Lord. They've seen the plagues come upon the nation of Egypt. They've seen the Lord's miraculous provision as they uh, you know, went through the Red Sea, they've seen him provide manna and quail, and now it comes to this moment and the complaint is there again. You know, God is trying to teach them how to be obedient and rely upon him. So 17.2, continuing, Moses said to them, why do you contend with, with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And, and therein is, you know, what we're seeing the distrust that's in the hearts of these people. Now, with that, you've got to you know, examine your own heart because this is human tendency. This is my failure, probably your failure too, that as many times as we've seen the Lord work in our lives, we hit the next obstacle and complain as though he's never helped us. God wants us to learn and process. And that's a lot of what he has to say throughout the scripture about learning through the trials. That he does take care of us. That this isn't a mindless faith. That when we ask, he responds. That prayer is heard and prayer is answered. So this is the lesson that he's teaching. And, and if we are like the nation of Israel and we are struggling in our walk and we're doubting and we're grumbling against the Lord, know this. That the Lord allows his children, his believers, to continue to go through the difficulties, the anxieties, and the troubles until we learn that he's reliable. You know, if you're saying to yourself, thinking, I just need these trials to end, let's learn to rely upon the Lord. And as we do, those things dissipate. The people thirsted there for water. The people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Same accusation as previous. You know, now it's thirst rather than hunger. 
but they're saying the same thing. You brought us out here to kill us. I mean, it's it's an absurd thought. You know, they they pose the question in previous chapters in a weird way. They say, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to kill us? <laughs> Run out of burial space inside Egypt? You needed to come out into a wide open desert in order to have enough space to bury us all? Was sort of their accusation. Now they're bringing a similar accusation. Now, from a human standpoint, you can kind of understand. It's millions of people. They're just learning how God processes this way and responds to their needs. But when you've moved through this whole thing for 40 years and these complaints are still on their lips, when we have progress with the Lord and you can look at your behavior, I can look at my behavior and see, you know, I've still got the same failures that I had decades ago. What is going on with my life? The surrender to the Lord has to come somewhere along the way. That's what the Lord is trying to lead them to. So Mo Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So you know, the overwhelmed reaction to the circumstance. Moses is literally in a difficult place, not knowing how to deal with a problem that big. Right In the past... He hasn't done well with dealing with problems. You know, how do you deal with a problem Egyptian? Well, you kill him, and then you bury him in the sand. And of course, now you're wanted for murder, and you have to flee the country. Moses, you know, his coping skills are relatively limited. And God is teaching him. In the process, he's learning how to go to God and make his inquiry there. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So this is a point where the Lord wants to do this work in plain view of especially the leadership that's working with Moses. So the people are going to see, but I'm, I mean, if you've got two, uh, four, eight million people, you know, take the minimum, two million people gathered around, there's going to be a greater number of people that don't see the specifics of what Moses is doing than those who see it firsthand. A large crowd like that, the point is the leadership sees it, a number of the people see it, so now the word is going to go out amongst the camp that Moses once again is receiving the powerful work of the Lord through his person. This, this also needs to become something that the nation of Israel learns. That Moses and Aaron are the anointed leadership of Israel and they need to follow their leading because in so doing, they're following the leadership of God. I mean, this bitterness and contention in their hearts ends up becoming an outright rebellion in just a matter of chapters here. 
you've got Moses' sister, his brother, right? Miriam and Aaron, and then later uh, the entire tribe of Korah that rise up and try to basically say, you know, Moses, your time is done. We appreciate that you're an anointed leader, but there are other anointed leaders amongst us, and you need to just step aside and let somebody, you know, new and modern take over. You've run your course. Uh, the Lord is very adamant about protecting the position, the anointing, and the leadership of Moses. Watch how this unfolds. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So Massa, temptation, Meribah, chiding or strife, arguing. Verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, this uh, warrior culture that's going to develop amongst them, they're going to be at war for quite a while, and especially once they get inside the promised land. Well, right, what are we saying? They're, they're at war to this day. Uh, they have to become a people who defend their existence. You know, I don't know if you saw it, uh, this week, the president of the Palestinian, Palestinian Liberation Organization, which now has another name, but you know the uh, you know the Palestinian organization within Israel has publicly announced this week he's just confessed the truth of his heart and his movement that they want the total annihilation of Israel. So you know, there's been this whole attitude amongst the world and you know many even within christianity have looked on thinking you know isn't there a way that we can just have like a two state system and you know create peace and isn't there there must be something and this week open confession before the world's media that no all along our desire has been to wipe out israel the palestinians have no desire they have announced this week they have never had a desire to make any peace in the process, what they want is total annihilation of Israel. They even went as far as to say, this is our land, historically proven, and whoever owns this land historically is the one who should possess it, and everyone else should get out. To which all of the Christians are saying, praise God, because Israel owned it first, so pack your junk and get out. But that's not how they see it. The world hates Israel wants to destroy them. They've gone from being a subservient slave nation to now they're going to have to fight for their everyday existence. So God begins to allow the likes of Amalek to come and do war with them, slowly letting in the process so they learn how to fight. And you just open up war with all of the surrounding nations and they would have lost. Well, I mean, clearly God would have intervened. But as far as their fighting skills, they have no prowess. What, what they know how to do, more than anything, is make bricks. They may be strong in the process, but they're not fighters. So now you have Amalek coming. Now Amalek, they were a nation of people who had descended from Esau. So Amalek was the illegitimate son of Eliphaz, the oldest son of Esau, Eliphaz's concubine, Timnah, bore Amalek to him. So you have uh, Jacob 
and Esau and the great contention that was there between these two brothers and how Esau being the older had that mindset that he should receive all of the inheritance or at least, you know, the eldest heir's position. But he had forfeited that and God had seen fit to the whole process as many of us understand. Anyway, the point is these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, Jacob becomes the blessed of God and becomes the nation of Israel. Esau, as an individual, hates Jacob and then all of his descendants, which is now the entire nation of Israel. So there is this bloodline animosity between these two nations. In particular, Amalek wants Israel gone. They, they, they want them completely wiped out. 17.9, Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Now, Joshua becomes the general of Israel. This is a clear indication, 17 verse 9, that you had some kind of fighting capability in Joshua already. He understood leadership, organization, and military prowess. He, he might have had some kind of history. We don't know. Other than here, the Lord is now thrusting him into this position of militaristic leadership. I think it's important to recognize that if you compare Moses against Joshua, you've got much more the calm, peaceable, shepherd, sort of priestly attitude with Moses. Much more concerned about the things of worship and you know, the temple and all of that that's going to develop. Not to say that Joshua doesn't, but Joshua very much has a militaristic mindset. From the, from the beginning, his whole process is organization and military and conquest and training and fighting, and this is what he's all about. I think it's important to recognize those personality differences because you have, you know, the warrior class amongst us, I mean, not that there's a warrior class, but I'm just throwing that out there. You know, there's, there's a militant approach that some of us have, and they develop an attitude sometimes like, oh, well, you know, all of these more prayerful Christians really aren't as useful to our military minds. And then you shift over to the more worshipful, prayerful group, and they act like, you know, that whole militant side of Christianity, it's just far more, no need to be so radical. Just calm down. Here's the point. God raises up Moses at the appropriate time, puts him in the appropriate circumstances. God raises up Joshua at the appropriate time, puts him in the appropriate circumstances. We, as people, tend to think we're the only ones that are right and everyone should be like us. There's going to be, you know, <laughs> any of you that know my pastor, right? Hung up on masculinity a little, you know. <clears throat> and along the way, you know, people get the wrong impression. I, Ken is such a gracious guy, and I don't mean to be preaching about him this morning, but he has often said, I don't care what kind of mister you are. If you're a man, you need to be a mister. Mr. Rogers, Mr. T. There's a broad spectrum there. As long as, as mister, you're being mister. And... As Mrs. you're being Mrs. God has called us each to be different persons, right? Not every woman can be Deborah of the Old Testament who leads an entire nation. You know, some are humble Mary 
who have an individual purpose, which changes the whole world. We need to let the Lord work in our lives, whether we be Moses or Joshua or just you going to work and being obedient to the Lord. Let the Lord fashion you and use you as he wishes. So choose from amongst the men, go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hands. <clears throat> so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hands became heavy. So they, must be Aaron and Hur, right, took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. His hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Oh, my goodness, you guys. As far as ministry goes, I would strongly encourage you to spend a lot of time Studying 17.9 through 17.13. Here's the deal. <clears throat> if we look at this picture strictly from a human sense, throw all your, the lessons you've had away previously, fit them in later as you find appropriate. Let's just think about this for a minute. Moses says, ah, I'm going to just hold my hands up in the air until Joshua has victory. Okay? Any of you that have held your hands up in the air for any length of time, know that it's not very long before there comes a point where you can't hold your hands up any longer, right? And even if through sheer determination, you say to yourself, no, I'm going to hold my hands up much longer. And you do. Physiological things begin to happen, right? As your fingers go numb... Hands get weak. It becomes impossible. You cannot hold your hands up indefinitely. Your body will not allow it, right? Your hands above your heart, your heart is working very hard to get the blood up to the fingertips. And the longer the time goes on, the more difficult that back pressure becomes. Your heart will be straining to do that after a period of time. Okay, so now, again, sweeping the whole thing aside, we look at it, just a modern approach, let's even say a non-Christian approach, and okay, so Moses just made some really impractical claims. Why, if he's such a spiritual leader, why didn't he have enough insight to know he was only going to be able to hold his hands up in the air for a few minutes? Right? I mean, if you're such a deeply spiritual man, were you thinking the battle was going to be over in a matter of minutes? Moses, have you never held your hands up in the air? This is the criticism that starts coming. Okay? Maybe, maybe again, the Lord inspired Moses, filled him with his spirit. Right? I have to believe that. Not just out of some compulsion. Literally have to believe that the Lord caused this whole situation to happen. And then the Holy Spirit made sure that it was recorded in God's word for all of eternity. And I do mean all of eternity. Right? Because heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. 
We'll be able to look this up for eternity. Moses couldn't hold his hands up. So now the crowd begins to throw accusations at Moses of, you don't even hear from God. You should, if you do, you should have had the insight to know how difficult the struggle was going to be just to do your simple portion of the task. All kinds of things begin to explode in these verses. I like Aaron and her, obviously. They're a great example. But are we ready to embrace the example? Because these men don't rush out with their credentials and create a massive new area of hand-holding ministry that the world then begins to recognize and they get all kinds of credit for. Instead, they got to stand next to the old man who now they've put in a chair who they're going to hold his hands up in the air for him because he was dumb enough to say, I'm going to hold my hands up until this battle's over. I think there's quite a lesson for us all to learn in this about ministry and leadership and being a help in ministry. Aaron and her can see plainly the the fleshly weakness of Moses, perhaps more than anyone. Are they the only guys in this whole picture that recognized when Moses' hands begin to drop The battle goes the other direction. When my pastor is so busy that he can't find time to lift his hands in prayer, then the whole of the congregation begins to be defeated. And so what? Stand at a distance and criticize Moses for not being able to hold his hands up? Or do we come alongside that man and literally hold his hands in place? And just say, relax, I've got it. There's an awful lot to learn from 179 to 1713. And this is what we find all through the scripture. Is it not that things just sort of tucked away, neglected, forgotten, not paid attention to, are actually incredibly valuable if we'll focus our attention on it. The Holy Spirit saw fit to orchestrate these circumstances and then saw fit to record them for us to learn from. Pay attention to the life of Moses, Aaron, her, these circumstances, and what it is the Lord is trying to say. You know, these great claims that we sometimes make, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33, Jesus said again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your own head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one, literally from the devil. There are many things to learn from these two things coupled together. Moses made a claim. He wasn't capable of completing himself. He didn't know that when he began, and it dramatically started affecting the body of believers. They were being defeated because this man could not do the simple task he had committed himself to. 
The thing to recognize in the circumstances, Aaron and her did not then keep blame upon Moses and say, you should have seen that through. Anybody that's held their hands up in the air knows you can only do that for a certain period of time. They don't bring any of that accusation against him. What they see is this man made a commitment. It's affecting the body of Christ. The only way we're going to see success in it is if I step in here and help this man accomplish what he has committed to the Lord to do. Remarkable piece of scripture to examine and learn from. 1714, then the Lord said to Moses, write this for memorial on the book, in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. They are wiped out by the Lord. The Lord accomplished his work over them in order to elevate uh, Israel and cause them to succeed. Now in 18, we see some other things. These chapters really do pertain a fair amount to uh, spiritual leadership. Here, 18.1, it says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So you'll recall that when Moses killed the Egyptian, right, he fled to Midian. There he met his wife, uh, Zipporah. They were married, uh, you know, with Jethro's blessing. And even in his departure, he received the blessing of his father-in-law. But now word has come of how the Lord has and is delivering the nation of Israel. And we're going to see Jethro respond. Moses' father-in-law took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So the Lord helping a stranger is more or less what's being said in these two names. Verse 5 and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your, her two sons with her. So this family reunion is about to take place during the period of time that Moses was inside Egypt and leading the people out to this point. He had sent Zipporah back to be with her father to care for her through the struggles, and now she's being brought out to him. So Moses, verse 7, went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. That's the standard greeting, much like our handshake, kiss left and right cheek. They asked each other about their well-being and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord 
who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now I want you to notice that statement that Jethro has made. First of which is, Jethro is a priest to the same God that Moses worships. So his position of spiritual authority is a biblical one. But it has some limits. If you think forward to the New Testament, uh, you run into Apollos. Brilliant speaker. Said to have been the greatest orator in the church in those days. No better speaker. His presentation, his PowerPoint slides, perfect. Apollos didn't know the complete ministry of Jesus. It, it was later, right, when he was taught those things more accurately that he began to teach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He was only teaching up to the repentance of John. He needed further instruction. Here, Jethro makes this statement, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. He's, he's been a worshiper, been a leader of worship, but now something has changed in his heart that he's learned from Moses. I make the point, right, not to paint some new picture of Jethro. I make the point because I want you to take close notice of Moses' submission to Jethro. If we're talking spiritual, you know, bean counting here, Clearly, Moses is greater. Why do we need to hear anything from Jethro? Why, why, why do we need to have this guy in the picture? So that we can see the greatest man on earth at this point, Moses submitting to his father-in-law. He understands proper authority in this moment. I'll say again, you know, there are so many people today that do not have any respect for the anointing of the Lord in the church. They, they look at you know, those within the church and those that work within the church as though it's just like a job. You know, you get a boss over there and you get a couple of co-workers that are aggravating. And, you know, it's the same thing within the church. You got a pastor and you got deacons. And, no, it's not the same thing at all. Not even remotely. This is the anointing of the Lord on someone's life, putting him into a position of authority. And in this position, he recognizes authority and he submits to the leadership of his father, Jethro. Think about this, you guys. Jump to the New Testament and here's Jesus with the coming of the centurion that says, I need a miracle in my house. Right? And Jesus says, let's go. Let's do that. I'm going to go to your house. And then... That Roman centurion, non-Jewish on every level, says, oh, no, no, you can't come to my house. Literally, it's not allowed. You're Jewish, and you're a Jewish rabbi, and if you step foot in my house, you'll be ceremonially unclean, and you won't be able to worship anymore. You just say the word, and my servant will be made well. Because I understand authority. I've seen the authority that heaven has given you in your conduct, 
and I'm in submission to that authority. And Jesus stops the whole crowd. It's the only time that Jesus says, everybody look at that. As far as faith goes, he says that in other places, but as far as faith, he even goes as far to say, I have not seen so great a faith in all of Israel. What faith? Someone that understands authority. That's how rare it is that Jesus says, everybody stop and look in history at this man. He understands authority. That's faith. Whoa. Understanding authority is faith. No wonder the church is in so much trouble. The American church, greatest church in world history, has sent more missionaries all over the planet, printed more Bibles than ever before. And right now, it's dead. The biggest culprit is the church has thrown away authority. I'll rewind our thought process here a little bit. We as Americans have an inherent flaw. Rebellion. There are lots of countries that don't have it like we do. We look at it like it's a positive characteristic. Our nation, don't take this the wrong way, our nation was founded in rebellion. So we tend to pat ourselves on the back for that attitude. In every environment we get in, we struggle with it. Our homes, our marriages, our relationships, our bosses, our education, always bucking the authority. You know, when people refer around the world to Americans as being arrogant, this is one of the things they commonly point to is the rejection of authority. You know, you know where uh, Europeans uh, explain to me where they saw it most in us is in all the established rules of a society that most of the societies in the world obey, but we don't. For instance, where does your trash go? In the trash can. But not for Americans. We just throw it on the ground. You go to lots of other countries in the world, they don't do that at all. Right? When do you cross the street? When the sign says so. I mean, go to lots of European countries, and they will, there'll be no cars, no trolleys, no nothing coming. And everybody just stand on the sidewalk waiting for that light to change. As pedestrians, nobody's jaywalking. We have rebellion ingrained in our hearts, and we go, see, you know, I'm a little bit rebellious. As though everybody's supposed to go, that's so cool. What, what did, what did, you know, what, what was it that ruined Samuel, the first king of Israel's whole reign over an entire nation? Rebellion. Right? Samuel the prophet comes to him, and he's in the midst of rebelling to God, and essentially he says, no, not rebelling to God. Everything you see around me that is rebellion, I've done all of that in order to serve the Lord. I, I've kept all of these cattle and all of this stuff as spoils of war in order to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And there, Samuel the prophet tells us some interesting things. Number one, that's where he says to obey is better than sacrifice. But then he goes on to say, 
that rebellion is equal to witchcraft. That's quite a thought. Rebellion is equal to witchcraft in the heart of the believer. That should never be present, right? If I'm talking to you afterwards, Chris, how's your faith going in the Word? Yeah, well, and I also go to a you know Satanist meeting every Wednesday. I beg your pardon? How could that be? Well, I'm a Christian and a Satanist. No, you're not. You're strictly a Satanist. <laughs> if you're if you're also worshiping Lucifer, then you're all then you're strictly a Satanist. There's no such thing as a Christian slash Satanist. No such thing as a Christian slash rebel. Think about that. Let that process through your mind. Right? Christ does give us permission to rebel against the world. And that's it. That's the only thing that he's told us to rebel against is the ways of the world. Come out of the world. Be separate from the world. And then you will be my children when you departed from her and when you obey me. Here, you know, Moses is going to submit. Look at what happens. Read 11 again. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. That's Jethro's confession. For in the very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. God, in sending each one of his curses to the nation of Egypt, was cursing the gods that they worshipped. Worship Ra, the sun god. Worship the Nile. What's the very first thing that Moses does? He goes out in the morning as Pharaoh is standing before the rising sun, Ra, and looking out across the Nile. It was perhaps even an act of worship that he did every morning. But he that's the first confrontation as he, he went out to see the sunrise over the Nile. And the very first thing Moses does is touch the Nile River and turn it to blood. And then all through the process, God is touching their false gods, bringing them ruin in the process. That's why here Jethro makes that saving you know, statement that in what they had behaved proudly, he was above them. So, it now says in verse 12, Then Jethro's Moses' father-in-law took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Notice, Moses doesn't make the sacrifice in offering, and Aaron does not make the sacrifice in offering. If they were superior to Jethro they would have said, hey, we'll handle the sacrifice. You know, if you, as a meager worshiper, want to follow our priests into this act of worship, feel free, but we're the spiritual leadership around here. We'll lead you in worship. Instead, they submit to Jethro's authority to lead worship here. I mean, if it was you or I... Right? We're in a setting in our spiritual maturity, and here comes someone who's just learning basic elements about worshiping God, right? Here, you got just two verses earlier, Jethro saying, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods in Egypt. Right? Everybody in Moses' Sunday school class already knows that. How is the Jethro doesn't know that? And yet, Moses is in submission to Jethro. Why? Because of his seniority, his age. He shows no rebellion. He shows no resistance. 
He demonstrates submission. Interesting characteristics that we see here. And even all of the leadership, the elders and Aaron come and eat bread with Moses' father-in-law. So it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. If you think I'm making too much of this, watch how the rest of this unfolds. So Moses sat on the next day. Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood before Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all he did for the people, he said, what is this thing you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? This is literally a criticism of Moses' method, but Jethro is doing it in a very constructive way. He's criticizing him, but he's, he's leading him into the answers and the discussion. What's going on here? Why are you functioning like this, Moses? What is this that you're doing here in these circumstances? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Seems good. That's okay. Right. You're, you're act, literally acting as a judge. As there are conflicts, you're saying to people, okay, in your situation, this is how the word of God applies, and this is how it settles the difficulty and the argument discussion that you're having. So he's giving them insight, more or less court is what he's doing. 1817, so Moses' father-in-law said to him, this thing that you do is not good. End of discussion. Your method is wrong. The way that you are running this entire nation is bad. (laughs) It's good. You know, it's not good. That's the polite way of saying what you're doing stinks. You're doing it the wrong way, Moses. Open criticism of his method. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. You can probably hear the grumbling right as Jethro said that. Right? There's a whole bunch of negative agreement. Yeah, that is what's going on. We are getting, I was, I've been here for three days waiting in line. You know, the office closed at sundown. I went back to the tent. I came back here before sunrise and got back in line, and I've been right here for three days. Why? Because at a minimum, there's two million people here, and there's one judge amongst all of them. You're going to wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. You can't keep your hands up in the air that long, Moses. Recognize the parallel now? You are not capable of this, Moses. You need help. Remember when you sat on the rock and you had Aaron and her? we got to do a similar thing right here. Within that, you can also recognize that Moses seems to have a character flaw, which is do the whole job yourself, right? Moses probably got it stamped right on his business card. Want a job done right? Do it yourself. And what he needs is help. He needs help. He needs men that are going to come along and help him complete the vision that God has given him, right? Notice that Aaron and her do not show up and say, look, what you're doing is not good. 
your hands can't stay up in the air forever. So what you probably need to do is just put your hands down. They don't make those recommendations. They hold to the commitment Moses has said, and they make sure that what they're doing is making sure his vision is fulfilled. They don't come into it with their own plan. They don't come into it saying, Moses, I don't know why you are the leader of Israel, because every decision you make is bad. Hold your hands up in the air forever. Take us to places where there's no water. Come out here in the desert without any food. As far as leadership goes, pal, you're an idiot. I mean, we appreciate your miracles and your preaching, but as far as how to run this congregation, you don't have any idea. You're a complete failure. And yet, this is exactly what God wants going on. How do we know that? Because God has orchestrated all of this. God's the one who's brought them to this moment. What you're doing is going to wear everyone out. It's too much. You're not able to perform it. Verse 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and work the work they must do. What's the prime example of Moses in this setting? Stand before God. Not effective argument, not all kinds of biblical insight. Stand before God. His father-in-law lends him wisdom that he's not even capable of seeing on his own. You need to be a man that stands before God. That's how you're going to serve the people. Yes, you're going to teach them. Yes, you're going to show them God's law and statutes. But the way they're going to learn is by you being a man who stands in front of God. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. They do not like Materialism, they, they, uh, they automatically are opposed to materialism. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. I want you to know something. Based on the way this is written out, what God, Jethro, and Moses are saying to us this morning is there are some men who are only capable of leading 10 people. Others who are more capable of leading 50 larger groups, and even those who are capable of leading hundreds, and in rare cases you have men like Moses who can lead everyone. But everybody has different capabilities. Who makes the decision about who serves the 10 and who serves the 100? Moses. How does he make that decision? He bases it upon their abilities. Look for men who are able to do this. Able to lead. You want to know who's capable of leading 10? You look around for the men who's already leading 10. 50? 50. 100? 100. You look for the natural propensity of the person. What are they doing? What are they already doing? You know, we're supposed to have a servant's heart, a servant's mind, right? Jesus telling us that as 
leaders within the church today. We should not be like the world who lord their authority over us, but that we should be a servant to everyone. That's my litmus test. People show up here and tell me how awesome they are. Great minister, wonderful ministry, and I should be used by you, so whenever you need me, just get out of the way and I'll preach to the congregation. And I say thanks. If they're very insistent about wanting to serve, I point at the toilet brush. That's what I do. Never really intending that they would use the toilet brush just to see if they're going to be offended by the toilet brush. Right? You want to know if someone's a servant? Treat them like one. See how they act. If they're truly a servant, they're not going to be offended by that. They're not going to be offended by it, right? We might quickly realize, oh, your skills are wasted on the end of this toilet brush. <laughs> You're a brilliant teacher. We need to put you elsewhere, right? And we launch them into whatever we can. But the person who's always aiming for the recognition within the body of Christ, you've got to have a servant's heart. Let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so command you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. This is basically an establishment of like a Supreme Court. You have those amongst you that are capable of judging and handling authority over 10. If they can't handle it, move it up to the 50. Can't handle it, move it up to the 100. If not, then bring it all the way to me and we'll sort the problem out. A whole system of people that are going to work with Moses in order for the effectiveness of ministry to be accomplished. I would remind us, Proverbs 13, verse 1 says, A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to a rebuke. Now, some of us have ungodly fathers, and to listen to them would be unwise. Right? When we're told in you know, the Old and the New Testament, children, obey your parents in the Lord. That literally means to whatever degree they're in the Lord, obey them. Okay? You know, if your dad arrives home tomorrow night and says, look, these financial struggles, just too much. I got a brand new plan for the family. We're now going to make crystal methane. That's how we're going to make money. Stop obeying that father. Right? Maybe even call the cops right there. You don't have to obey parents that are leading you into disobedience. Obey them right up to that point, right? In every point they ask you to obey them, obey them except for where they say disobey God or his word. Here, Jethro says something to Moses, and what does Moses do? Brilliant plan. Let's institute that. Why? Because he is already a wise son. He's a wise son who's going to obey his father-in-law. He's going to follow these plans. Here's the thing, you guys. This is the only system of government for the church that God presents to us in all of the scripture. One man leading a group of other men who care for the entire congregation. This whole attitude of everybody should have a vote, this is a democracy, let's all secret ballots and we'll 
That's completely unbiblical. The church is not called for that. Here's the problem. You start down that road, everybody gets an opinion, and you'll destroy a church with everyone's opinion. And it won't be over something noble, like, you know, are we going to spend all our money to go preach the gospel in Africa? It'll be over the color of the carpet. Or the chairs, or the paint, or something stupid. Because everybody feels like they should have a vote. That's not what the scripture presents to us. My very first church split as a child. Little tiny Baptist church, Essex Junction, Vermont. You know what it split over? Women wearing hats. I'm talking right down the middle. All the hat wearers were on one side. And then shortly after that, they all left our church. One woman reading the scripture came across the passage that said when women pray in the church, they should have their heads covered as a sign of submission to God and the leadership of the church. And that was it. The women of the church should have their heads covered. And so she starts and she convinces her cronies and they do it. And then a few more and then a whole bunch of people are now opposed to the pastor because he tried to set them straight. And now they're all the hat wearers. And then they left and went down the road and started another church, which died. It was a good purification of that small little church. But what a foolish thing to divide over. What a foolish thing to destroy the church over. To divide the body of Christ over the leadership established by the Lord. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law. Did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel. Made them heads over the people. Rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, fifties, tens. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses. But they judged every small case themselves. All the way up to thousands. Get some organization going is what Jethro says. See, here's something to think about. Moses, deeply spiritual man, anointed by God, not especially gifted in administration. Yet a man filled with the spirit, Jethro, who's not especially spiritual, not especially deep in his doctrine, but profoundly capable of administration, works together works together to accomplish the work of the Lord. You do not see Jethro or any of these men saying, look, if Moses was a real leader, he would have been capable of judging thousands and hundreds. He would have been like us. What they recognized was his anointed position created by God. And everyone was in submission to that. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went his way to his own land. Beautiful example in all of the scripture, which stays all the way up to today. Even today, this is the only system of biblical government that is demonstrated and we should be using. Jesus used the same thing. He was the leader. He chose three, Peter, James, and John, to function directly under him. He chose 12 to be his chosen apostles. He sent out 
72 to go minister his gospel. And there were 120 that followed him from the beginning of his ministry all the way to his ascension into heaven. Biblical example, godly understanding. Much for us to learn. Greatest thing for us to learn this morning is that issue of submission. Submission to God. Submission to our true master, right? We've often said, if you claim him as your, if you claim him as your savior, then you have to also embrace him as your Lord. You have to say, yes, sir. You have to be obedient in the process. If we're not being obedient, if we're not in submission to his lordship, then the question really is, is he your savior? Because if he is your savior, you'll find yourself in submission. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are really, really grateful for your love and your work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to be men and women of submission, Lord. Proper submission. We know that there's an ungodly world out there that we need to rebel against, break away from. Lord, give us that wisdom that we would be able to follow you. Above anything else, we would be able to follow you and see your work and your will be done in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.